The rest of you, please take out a copy of God's Word and turn it back to John chapter 17, back to the high priestly prayer that we are so sadly drawing so close to finishing. We have verse 24 this morning, page 903, if you will bear with me, and remember love bears all things, so you have to. Give me two more weeks, give me two more weeks to desperately hold on to this precious section of scripture that I am loath to leave. Last time from verse 21, we considered Christ's prayer for our unity. More on that explicitly next week. Verses 25 and 26 serve well as a sort of summary of the whole prayer, and as we will be leaving not just the prayer, but the whole section, this holy of holies that is the upper room discourse of John 13 through 17, that'll be a good opportunity to kind of look back. We've spent almost a year in these chapters, which is actually not nearly enough time, but but what is it that, that sandwiches this most precious of sections? What is this section ultimately about? Well, in 1726, we'll close and see, I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that, here's the purpose, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The end of the section. The beginning of the section, 13.1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then we're going to see that so beautifully and clearly demonstrated for us in chapters 18 and 19. So next week we'll, we'll close by focusing on love and, and, and the unity that we have in love. This week we come to Christ's final petition, the very last thing that Christ, um, the one who does all things well, the very last thing that the perfect man prays for us. What is the last thing on his heart for you? What does he most want for you and will for you? That you may be with him and that you may see him, see him as he truly is, see his glory. And so this week we're considering glory and our, and our unity in glory. I ask you this every now and then, but you know, why are you here? What are you after? What do you believe that this whole church thing, this Christianity thing, this faith thing is about? What do you believe that your life is about? And what is it that unites us particularly as this local body here at Woodside? Is it this wonderful old building? Is it the choir? Is it the coffee? Is it table tennis? Is it that we're all gluttons for punishment and we just love long sermons? Not, not this one. Not that this one will be long. But I want to argue this morning that the answer to all of those questions must be something very big. It must be something far bigger than we tend to to think. What is the chief end of man? What is the main purpose or goal of man, of of you and of your life? You know it. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the most known and least lived catechism question ever. And this is what Christ prays for us in His final words. And you could argue that this sums up the whole prayer, and you could argue that this sums up the whole of the Christian life. If we could just get this one thing, if we could just understand that most of our problems are rooted in the simple fact 
that we fail to realize and appreciate the profound and life-altering truth of who we are and of what we have in Christ and and of where we're going and of uh, of the goal and of the end. We fail to understand who we are and, and what we're for and thus where we will actually find satisfaction and peace and joy and life. How can I not one last time as we consider glory one last time from this prayer that is all about glory, quote John Owen and his great work, The Glory of Christ, and his great claim. This is the universal remedy and cure. This is the only balm for all our diseases. And I love big, bold claims like that. Universal remedy and cure. That's huge. That sounds wonderful. You tell me or you tell anyone that you have a universal remedy and cure and comfort for everything that ails, and we would do whatever we have to do to get that thing. I have been going to absurd and time-consuming lengths to find something that could remedy and cure my hip. I'm going to go into Mike Oaks, and my whole left hip is blue and black because whatever, I'll try anything. All right, Mike, do whatever you need to do to fix my hips, right? If we believed that there was this thing that would fix and cure everything, we would pursue that thing with great energy. What if there were a universal remedy and cure for what really ails us, for what ails our souls, a remedy for our sin and death? You know what it is by now. Owen says that it is simply a sight of the glory of Christ that is the universal remedy and cure. How could he make such a claim? Well, because it's the very thing, it's the last thing that Christ himself prays for us here. So let's, let's consider it. Three points for you this morning. You know that you are always pursuing your good somewhere. So first, we need to see that Christ's will is your good. What does he want and will for you? Point number two, your good is to be with Christ And point number three, your good is to see Christ's glory. That's all we're going to do this morning. John 17, let me read it for you. I'm just going to read verse 24. We are focusing here on this one verse. But still, please pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. John 17, 24. The son prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we have just heard the claim that there is such a thing that is a universal and remedy and cure. Father, there is much that ails the many souls in this room this morning. There is much that tends to trouble our hearts. Father, what if you have very clearly revealed to us and provided for us the one remedy and cure that we need for that which bothers and troubles and discourages and distracts us? Father, what if really a sight of the glory of Christ can give life and hope and peace forever? Father, he must be a glorious Christ. He must be a gracious and kind and wonderful person if a sight of him 
can change everything. So, Father, right now there are many things that are clamoring for our attention and for our sight. I ask that you would help us in these next couple of minutes to focus on your word, your word which is living and active, the word which is the means through which right now by faith we see Christ and his glory. Father, we ask that you would give us such eyes to see. I ask that you would comfort troubled hearts, that you would um, focus distracted souls. Um, Father, that you would increasingly convince us that often the things that we are most concerned about are of the least importance, and that often what we are least concerned about is of the most importance. So, Father, help us to be concerned about Christ and about our souls and the life that is found um, in him. Father, please do now through me and through your word what I cannot do. Um, Father, show us Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one, Christ's will is your good. Where is that coming from? Well, notice first how our verse begins. First, the first word is Father. We're so familiar with this that we forget that no one before Christ spoke like this. No one addressed the all-glorious God as Father. We've been going through the Psalms for a year now. We just read Psalm 52, one a week. And we've seen again and again the great intimacy and familiarity with which David pours out his heart to God in prayer. 42.1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. 34.8, O taste and see that the Lord, Yahweh, is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 23.1, the Lord Yahweh is my shepherd. What, what intimacy and familiarity between God and the man after God's own heart. But never once does David address God saying, Father, my Father. And so when for the very first time in history, this man Jesus shows up speaking to God with even more intimacy and familiarity than even the Psalms, calling God Father. Well, this is something special and new and precious. This is the Son addressing the Father. And it's how he begins the whole prayer back in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So just before we really get into this, we have to keep in mind that this is the Son in prayer to the Father. And the theme of that prayer, beginning to end and all the way through, is glory. And as the Father is the God of all glory, the Son prays to Him. And prays to Him repeatedly as His Father. You know, I'm just trying to emphasize that the identity of the one who is praying here is of utmost importance. We all pray, and we all pray for all kinds of things. My prayer is an expression of the heart. It is a revelation of our desires. As we've been saying, prayers reveal priorities. What do you pray for? All kinds of things. But if your prayer history is anything like mine, all kinds of good things, and all kinds of bad things. Some of God's greatest graces to me have come through his not answering my sometimes selfish, sinful, stupid prayers. I, fallen and finite, often desire the wrong thing. And so I have often prayed for the wrong thing. God has frequently been gracious not to give me the wrong thing. I would have been married to many other women 
for God answering all of my stupid prayers. Um, so I'm very thankful that he ignored all those prayers and had better uh, things for me because that would have all been a disaster. Uh, thankful um, uh, that God continues to know what is my good and continues to not answer my often sometimes bad prayers. Here's the point. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, one one, the Word of God, who uh, was God and was with God, uh, never prays for the wrong thing. You often pray for the wrong thing. He cannot pray for the wrong thing. And since he always prays for the right thing, he always prays for the good thing. He always prays for your good. And remember, that's what part three of this prayer, verses 20 through 26, is about. Christ has prayed for himself, 1 through 5. He has prayed for his disciples, 6 through 19. Now he is praying for his church, for us. And the good God only prays for his people's good. But I have worded our point that uh, he wills your good, that his will is your good. Why? Look at the verse again. Father, I desire. Stop. That's a fine translation. That is a good translation. But if you're following along in the King James, you read, Father, I will that they. Which is it? Well, both are fine. Rightly understood. But I bring this up because some make a big deal out of these translations. Oh, see, the, the modern translations are inferior because they've softened the word from willing to desiring. But again, the word generally does mean desire. And desire is a perfectly legitimate translation of the word. And the argument that I want to make here is that desiring and willing for the perfect Son of God is no different. And that you can fight great comfort in the fact that the Son of God desires you and wills your good. Let's consider this will word for a second. Start with the noun. I don't have a will. By that I mean I don't have the legal document that contains the instructions for what I desire to happen to my money. Now, I know that Derek or someone is going to rebuke me after the sermon. I know that. You really should have a will. I, I know. But I really don't have any money, and you guys own my house. So I give all the little that I do have to Melissa. That's my will. That's what I want and desire to happen with all that is mine if I die. Again, I know I should have a will. One day I will. But I currently don't. In the sense of a legal document, but I, of course, very much do have a will. I, as a person created in the image and likeness of God, possess the faculty of mind or heart or soul, all the same thing, that faculty by which I desire and desi decide and do. That's the human will. And it is very much not a free will in the sense that most people use the word today. It is not free to choose anything. It is not free from sin. Jesus says very clearly in John 8.34 that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And slaves, by definition, are not free. The will is free in the sense that we are responsible, moral agents. We are free to do what we desire, uh, to will what we want. But that which is sin never wants that which is holy. That which is death never wants that which is life. This is why we are so desperately dependent on God and his grace. But the will is the faculty by which we desire and decide and do. And so to will, the verb will, means simply to desire and then to do according 
to that desire. It is to want, and then it is to act on that want. Look back at John chapter 5. I want to look at a few uses of this word. As you look, I will drink. John 5, 6. In verse 5, we're introduced to a man who has been an invalid for 38 years. I've been alive for 39 years. So two years of a minorly hurt hip doesn't sound too bad compared to 38 years of hurt everything. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? That's our word. It's the same word as 1724, Othello. Do you wish, do you desire to be healed? Of course he does. And the kind and compassionate Christ heals him. Now look down at 521. Look at 521. Jesus speaks there. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Same word. It is the right of the sovereign God of life to give life to whomever he chooses. Everyone is dead in their trespasses and sins. Justice for everyone would be death and hell. The only hope of anyone is the mercy and the grace of the God of life. God gets to do what he wants and wills always. That's what it means to be God. Now look down at verse 30, 530. We're moving here from the verb to the noun. It's the same root word. It's, it's from thelo to thelema. 5.30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Look over at 6.38. Same idea. I'm just trying to make a point here. 6.38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Which is what? Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. There are whole sermons there. Two key points. The Son's will is perfectly aligned with the Father's will. Their will is one. There is unity in the will of God. The Son's will is the Father's will. The Father's will is the Son's will. So, when the Son prays, I desire, or I will, again, same thing for God, nothing can frustrate his will. He always does what he desires. And he desires perfectly. And so when the son prays, I will, we can know that this too is the father's will as well. For the son only does the will of the father. So the son and father's will perfectly aligned. Second observation. That will, father and son, is life. That everyone who looks on the Son of life, should have life eternal. And that's your sumum bonum Latin. That's your highest good. There's nothing higher. There is nothing better than life. True life. John 10, 11, the abundant life that Jesus came that we may have. 
That which is good is that which pertains to life. I've already referenced Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a rich word in the Hebrew. We've kind of ruined the word good. How's that cookie? Yeah, you know, it's, it's good. No, good, biblically. Good in, in Hebrew is a great word. It's first used seven times in Genesis 1, and Genesis 1 is, of course, all about life. The God of life, creating life, and it was good. It was good. It was very good. And so, biblically, the Hebrew word good essentially describes anything that is beneficial for life. Anything that produces, promotes, enhances, or adorns life. And all I want you to see here is that this is what God himself wills for you, if you are his. This is what he wants for you, what Christ prays for you, what God himself is working out for you. Our job then, faith then, is the fight to believe this. Yes, faith receives and rests on uh, Christ alone and his work on our behalf. Right? Look on him, believe on him, and live. But faith doesn't stop there. Faith is not just for the beginning of the Christian life. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See, faith fights to trust that all that God has for me is good, and that it is far better than anything the world has for me. Faith is the conviction, even when I don't feel it, even when I don't understand it, that God's will and words and ways are good for me, abundantly and eternally good for me, infinitely better than anything Satan, sin, or self could have for me. And so, one of the most important convictions of the Christian life that we must learn and then come back to again and again in the face of trials and temptations is that God's will for you is always good, period. Christ's will is your good. Do you believe that? Where are you tempted to doubt and disbelieve that right now? Where are you tempted to believe that maybe, just maybe, your way or the world's way might be just a little bit better for you. We must fight to believe that the perfect God knows better than we do, that he loves us more than we love ourselves, that his vision of the good life is superior to our vision of the good life. And so for the rest of our time, all I want to do is briefly consider what that good is. Because just like we tend to do with Romans 8.28, We can easily read and take the idea that God wills and works for our good, and then we kind of smuggle into that our often sinful and selfish wants and will into a definition of the good. So we have to define it as God defines it. We have to make sure we understand what the good is that he wills for us. So so what is it? Point number two. Your good is to be with Christ. Back to the text. You spent all that time on three words. Father, I desire. What does he desire or will? 24. I desire, I will, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. 
This really is a wonderful verse. Many have called the, the whole upper room discourse the holy of holies. Sinclair Ferguson, he's Scottish, so he's right. Um, he calls verse 24 the holiest place of all. For many reasons, but one of them has to be the fact, and church, we, we cannot miss this. We cannot miss here how evident is Christ's concern and care for us. Here, at this moment, moments before his betrayal, trial, suffering, and death, you are tempted at times to feel alone, forsaken, and forgotten. In Christ, that is always a lie, and that is never the case. And we see that here. We see that as Christ faces hell itself, you are on his heart and mind. So we're really going to hit this next week, but we see so clearly that Christ cares for his people. He cares for you. He prays for you. We are a prayed for people and prayed for by the Son of God himself. And that's, that's huge. We are the special object of the concern of the Christ. You are God's. He prays for those whom you have given me. Remember back in verse 2, again, all whom you have given me. Verse 6, the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Nine, I am praying for those whom you have given me. Ten, all mine are yours, and yours are mine. Yeah, that, that's an identity that you can build your life upon. You are always thinking and feeling and willing out of some sort of assumed identity. If you are in Christ, make sure it's this. You are God's, and you are given by God. You are chosen by God and given by God the Father to God the Son, to be rescued and redeemed and so given back to God. God gives. I didn't know this until I was working on the text this week, but give, uh, ditto me. Uh, I knew it was one of John's favorite verbs, but I counted 17 times in John 17, we have gives. God gives, God gives, God gives, God gives. Grace gives. And the first thing that God gives is a people to his Son to be saved to live. And that's the good that Jesus is praying about here. I desire that they may be with me where I am. And where is that? Well, this could seem a little strange because at that moment, as he's praying, they are with him. They're all standing there together. They're with him. So this must be Jesus looking forward. I look back at verse 11. It's like verse 11. In verse 11, Jesus prayed, I am no longer in the world. Well, yeah, you are. Technically, he still is. But, he, but he's praying forward, looking forward, uh, concerning his imminent departure. He is returning to the Father. And so he is praying from that perspective. And so when he prays that we may be with him, the where he is, is the very presence of the Father himself. I said earlier that the opening and closing of this whole upper room scene from beginning to end, beginning of 13 to end of 17 is this, this like love inclusio. Well, that's next week. But I could also make the case that there is an inclusio within the inclusio. That sounds obnoxious. How about a, a sandwich within a sandwich? If you take 1724 and this great and final petition, you can connect it back to the beginning of the upper room discourse proper, which is 141. Turn there and look at 14, 1 through 4. Remember, Christ teaches for three chapters 
and then he prays for a chapter. How does he begin this most precious teaching? Why is he teaching them? And what is his end and goal? 14.1. This is how he begins his teaching. Let not your hearts be troubled. Remember the context. How is that possible? He's just told them that he's leaving them, that one of them will betray him, and that all of them will abandon him. I'm going to die. You're all going to fall away. Let not your hearts be troubled. These were the most troubling of circumstances. You know, what about you? What are, what are your most troubling circumstances at the moment? What is it? What would you have to pinpoint that is, that is most troubling your heart right now? This would be called miserable comfort these days in this age in which the, the therapeutic has triumphed and the only response is to be empathy. But what if Christ himself says to you in your trouble, whatever it is, hey, let not your heart be troubled. How? Keep reading. How does the perfect God-man comfort the profound, profoundly troubled heart? And I'm convinced that we comfort today differently than Christ comforts. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to, catch it, he doesn't say, he doesn't say the place or a house, I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. He, he comforts them with the promise of his presence. The biblical solution to the troubled heart is the realization by faith that in Christ we'll be with him forever. This whole section is about Christ's care and concern for his own during their time on earth. And it will be a troubling time. And so he gives them comfort. He gives them strengthening words of truth. He promises the Spirit who will be with us and in us. And he promises his return. The point is that for the Christian, it's supposed to be the future that determines the entire present. Their life and ours finds its direction, its purpose, its power in our union with Christ. And the promise that he cannot fail to keep, that we will be with him. This is Christ's will for you. This is God's will for you. Is it your will for you? Is, is this your desire? It is the desire, at least to some degree, for all who are his. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, Paul writes, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Again, that's not the Lord taking us out. That's the world. We come up to meet him, and we are ushered back into the world with him. Triumphal entry. We meet him in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's supposed to be a comfort and an encouragement. And so Paul continues in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now let's be honest. Do we ever encourage one another with these words? Do we ever encourage one another in the midst of great trouble that Christ is coming and that we will always be with the Lord? And why don't we do that? Maybe it's in part because this is not all that much what we actually desire. We have been so shaped by the world and so captured and shaped by our screens, right, constantly staring at those screens, which are great at making the wicked world 
look all glittery and great and appealing and alluring. It's so effective that we begin to, to set our mind on the things of the world. And with minds set on the things of the world and eyes set on screens, we can quickly become blind to the wonders and the beauties of the things of God and the things that are above and the blessing uh, of eternity that is offered with Christ. You know Paul's words in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Eh, you don't believe that. We, we in no way live as if to die is gain. We in no way live that way. He keeps going. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the... He's talking about dying and living. He says, ah, you know, dying, living, ah, I am hard pressed between these two things. My desire is to depart. Again, let's be clear, that's death. My desire is to die and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul, who was far better than us, far godlier, wiser, and smarter than us, understood that death, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, is nothing to us. But the immediate and blessed entrance into Christ's personal and physical presence. Death for the Christian is to be instantly with Christ and that is far better. Paul understood that this, like C.S. Lewis writes in the, the last uh, book of the Chronicles of Narnia, seven books, and he's like, oh, this is all the title page. It's the title page to the eternity of what awaits us with Christ. We so live as if this is everything and that's nothing, when this is nothing and that's everything. And Paul gets it. And so he says, even death, that gets me to Christ. And that's far better. Why is Christ, why is with him far better? It's because of who he is. It's because he himself is the blessed God. The one from, through, uh, and to are all things. The one who is perfect in holiness and goodness and beauty. What is beauty? It's much harder to define than you would think. But in part, beauty is that which pleases. Beauty is that which gives pleasure and meaning and satisfaction. Psalm 27.4. I love this verse. I'm still seeking and praying to understand this verse. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. See, God is that which pleases. He is that which is beautiful and good. And you know Psalm 1611 is coming. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And you know, this is coming too. What if that's true? Like, what if that's actually true? What if the Lord is so infinitely beautiful and that in his presence with him is full joy and forever pleasure? See, that's what Christ is praying for you. He's praying that you may be with him. And he is that Lord. He is the Lord that is infinitely beautiful. He is the Lord in whose presence is full joy and forever pleasure. He really is praying for your good. And it is a good far greater than you could ever pray or will for yourself. Your good is his presence. Your good is to be with the blessed one 
forever. And point number three, your good is to see Christ's glory. Look at 24 one last time. See what Christ prays that you might see. I desire, I will, that they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It always comes back to glory. The great truth of the Reformation is not sola scriptura. It's not sola fide. It's soli deo gloria. It's glory to God alone. This is the heart of Christ's prayer because this is the heart of of the reality of which Christ is the very heart. He is the beloved Son with whom the perfect Father is well pleased. He is the one by whom all things were created. Colossians 1.16, all things were created through Him. And catch this, there's nothing more important for you to realize than this. All things were created through Him and all things were created for Him. What a claim that is. What if everything is from Him and for Him? him if he is the center in that way if everything is for him he must be indescribably beautiful and powerful 117 and he is before all things and and in him all things hold together what a person this must be hebrews 1 3 he is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the one that is praying for you. This is the one who has care and concern for you. This is the one who hours after these words is going to die for you. The one who is all of that, the creator and sustainer himself, entering into the creation, he sustains himself to live and suffer and die for the creatures who rejected and rebelled against him that's you that's me and yet knowing all of that knowing what's to come he prays for us he loves us he suffers and dies for us knowing all of that his desire and will is still that we would be with him which would require him to go through all that is to come starting in chapter 18 which would require becoming sin for us, which would require taking the wrath of God for us. He can pray here, Father, I will, because he's about to pray, Mark 14, 36, yet not what I will, but what you will. And as as his human nature begins to experience the horror that is the becoming of sin and and the horror of God-forsakenness, Who who can understand these blessed mysteries? Uh, But we we must try, for it is here that we most clearly see the glory of God. It is at the cross that we most clearly behold the glory of the Lord. Throughout John's gospel, the glory of God is connected directly to the cross of Christ. 1331, Judas goes out to do his deed. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. For it is here that we see his great and steadfast and saving love for his people and the willingness of the all-glorious one to become the all-forsaken one for us. See the glory of God in the grace of God. See the glory of Christ in the incarnation and the humiliation of Christ for us. You see it and you live 
But that's what a sight of glory does. You see it and you be glad, for that is what a sight of glory does. The perfect one can only will that which is for your good. And we see here that the final thing that he wills for you is that you see his glory. And this is why. It's because of what glory does. It's true glory. We are all of us glory seekers. You're seeking it somewhere. And I'm tempted to seek glory in writing a book. I'm tempted to seek glory in running fast. Can't even run. I'm tempted to seek glory in a big church. Right? All these glory things are not working out uh, very well. Right? We're all glory seekers. Why? Because of how God made us. Because he created us for glory. He created us for his glory. We're all of us looking and longing for something bigger than us, something to capture us. But in sin, we're all just looking in the wrong places. Do you know where you tend to seek your glory apart from Christ? What Christ is doing here is he's calling us to the right place. The one place, the true glory, one sight of which can transform a life and secure an eternity. Think of that one time in your life that you've just been absolutely awed and overwhelmed and captured by something bigger than you and greater than you. Niagara, the Grand Canyon, the vastness of the sea, or a sunrise bursting forth all of a sudden. Right? These can be transporting and transforming experience. These things that are bigger than us, these glorious things. Now, you can take that and then multiply it by infinity or whatever. What will a sight of such glory do? First John 3, 2. The same John witnessing this and listening to all this. First John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, catch this, when he appears, we shall be like him. That's, again, that's, that's the end. That's the goal. You know, all that we've just learned about the all-glorious Christ, perfect in character and kindness and compassion, and it's all the fruit of the Spirit, perfectly. We shall be like him. Amazing. But how? We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That is a wonderful and profound statement. Somehow, seeing him is the means through which we become like him. Let's end with a closing consideration of that. Let's close with 2 Corinthians. Turn there, because this is just remarkable. I want you to see it, and then I'll be done. 2 Corinthians, go to chapter 4. Excuse me. We shall see him. We will be like him because we shall see him. That's amazing. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. <clears throat> 9.66, sorry. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, page 9.66. You know this, but, but do you live in light of this? We just heard Jesus say, let not your hearts be troubled. How? We have many reasons for much troubled hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Paul says, so we do not lose heart. How? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction. Paul suffered so much more 
than I have ever suffered. Paul writes, This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How is it doing that? Verse 16. As we look not to the things that are unseen, but to the things, not, sorry, not as we look, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's so much there. Again, we see that the thing that God is willing for us is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Wherever you're seeking glory, whatever you think will be glorious and good for you, it is nothing compared to this. And we see that it is somehow looking that prepares us for this. It is a, it is a proper sight. It is seeing the right things correctly. It is focusing on the right things. You, like me, are prone to almost entirely look to the things that are seen, to have your vision and mind consumed by which that is seen. But these are little things. These are transient things. It is the unseen things that are eternal. But how do you see unseen things? Well, look down at chapter 5, verse 6. 5, 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that we, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And same thing as Philippians 1, right? It's how little we actually think like that. But note here that there are two ways to walk, by faith and by sight. There are two ways to get a sight of glory, by faith and by sight. Right now, we walk and we see only by faith. Now flip back to chapter 3, 2 Corinthians three eighteen. We haven't preached through 2 Corinthians yet. Maybe it's coming. 2 Corinthians three eighteen. Here it is. Here is your homework. Take this, memorize this, meditate on this. Behold this. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Okay, so, so you, me, transformed into glory. Okay, made like Christ. Romans 8.29 God is conforming us into the image of his son. That's the good that he is working out for you in all things. Making us like the perfect one. That's God's will for us. And that's our ultimate and highest good. And the means of that blessed transformation is a seeing, a beholding of the one who is apparently so glorious that his glory, his weightiness, remember great weight has impact and effect. He's, he's so glory, glorious that his glory cannot help but shape you and change you. It is a sight that saves and shapes. It is a glory so glorious that it cannot help but transform into more glory. And right now we walk by faith. Right now that sight happens through sound, through our ears. The ears are the organ of faith as we hear of this all-glorious and gracious one through his living 
and active word. That's why Peter's message last week was so important. That's why any dullness of hearing is so dangerous. That's why you must personally and we must corporately seek to more and more orient our lives entirely around this wonderful word that can literally and spiritually transform us. So we see glory here, and it changes us. It changes everything. I mean, have you seen him? But one day, as we sing in It Is Well, and Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. That will be a day. That will be the day, and it will be indescribably good. And that's what Christ prays, desires, and wills for you here. That you may be with him to see this transforming, blessed glory. Is that what you pray and desire and will in any way? This this is the longing of all who are his. All who have had the barest glimpse of his glory. Look and long for more. Knowing how little they have seen. Knowing how sinful and selfish and prone we still are to seek the glory of self and to look for glory elsewhere. But knowing that there's so much more to be seen and found in this Christ. So God's people want more, or at minimum, they, they're aware of how little they want, and they at least want to want more. But, but it must be said, if we have little interest in being with Christ now, through the means that he has provided for us, through his, his word and through prayer and through uh, the corporate gathering of the saints, if we have little interest in being with Christ now, why do we think that we will be with him in heaven? Which is all about being with Christ. If you care little for Christ and the presence of Christ now, it is unlikely that you will experience it and enjoy it then. If there is no desire or will for his glory now, why would you assume you will desire it and enjoy it and will it then? The question that we're all should be asking is, do we love Christ? Do do we really know him for who he is? And have we trusted him and turned from our sin and and turned to him and seen him, the barest glimpse of his glory? Two brief applications, uh, and I'll be done. And if the end is with him then, seeing his glory then, then, hey, why not seek to be with him now? And why not seek his glory now? And he, he is sought and he is seen in his word. Can we help you in any way? Can Pastor Mike or I help you? Are there brothers or sisters in Christ around you that can come alongside you? Peter encouraged us to be reading the word with one another um, together. Let's seek to be with him. And let's see his glory now through the ordinary means that he has provided for us, both personally and corporately. And what if there really is a universal remedy and cure for all that ails you, and it is actually ultimately found only in God's word? Take up and read. Pray for God's help. Ask for someone else's help. And second, if the end is to be like Jesus then, why not seek to be like him now? John himself makes this application for us. We've read 1 John 3, too. We shall be like him 
because we shall see him as he is, verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Grace and glory never encourage complacency and sin. Grace and glory always spur on toward godliness and purity. The glory that we are seeing is a holy glory, and holy is good, happy, and so we see it and, and we long for it, and we will more and more seek to put off the old man, uh, to put to death the sin that remains, and to walk in a manner worthy of him, dependent entirely on the Spirit. Faith believes that all that God wills for you and reveals to you in his word is good, and far better than anything sin, Satan, or the world can offer you. So trust him, fight and flee that sin. Fight and flee that sin by running and looking to the glorious Christ. This is Christ's will for you. This is what God himself desires for you. And in his perfection, he can only will and desire for you that which is good. And his will, praise God, will be done. Therefore, in Christ, your good will be done. So trust that your good is found in the presence of Christ. Trust that, is, uh, that your good is found in a sight of his glory. And let me pray for you as we conclude this time. Father, we have seen your will revealed to us through the prayer of your Son. We know that you are perfectly good and, and always good and always will what is right and good. Father, we have seen that our good is found in your presence. It is found in being with Christ, and it is found in seeing his glory. Father, help us to believe that. Father, please reveal to our hearts where we are still so sinfully prone to believe that our good um, is found in other things and in the things of this world. Father, often in selfish and, and sinful things. Father, we pray that you would increasingly give us a heavenly and an eternal perspective. Um, give us spiritual eyes to see your glory and your goodness and your grace revealed to us in Christ and, and in the cross. And we pray and ask that that would be increasingly our will um, for our lives. That would be increasingly our desire for ourselves and for our families and, and for our church. Um, Father, we want to more and more uh, align our wills with yours. So we pray that you would help us to do that today. We pray that you would help us to do that by convincing us of the goodness and the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, show us Christ, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.